I'm Carolyn Calloway-Thomas, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Alilia Bundles. Alilia Bundles is president of the Madam Walker Alilia Walker Family Archives, an author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, the award-winning New York Times best-selling biography of her great-great-grandmother. A noted speaker, Ms. Bundle's speeches about Madam Walker, entrepreneurship, philanthropy, the politics of hair, media, and journalism have been well received across the country. She has written extensively on the politics of hair and currently is at work on the first comprehensive biography of her great-grandmother, Alilia Walker, whose Harlem Renaissance parties helped define that era. Alilia, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. I want to start out with who you are and what brings you to Bloomington and Indiana University. Well, I grew up in Indianapolis, so this is a place that's uh, you know very familiar to me. My dad is a graduate of Indiana University, so whenever I come, I have nice memories. But I'm here actually today because Stanley Nelson, the filmmaker who did a movie called Two Dollars and a Dream about Madam Walker, is updating the film. So I'm here today to tape that. Okay. And we are going to have an opportunity to talk about how you came to write a biography of Madam C.J. Walker. But for a moment, I would like to focus on you. And I would like for you to describe yourself and tell us what makes you tick. You know, I love people and I love to write and I, uh, I love to do uh, journalism. So those are the things I think that are most important to me. And growing up in Indianapolis, I worked for the junior high school newspaper at West Lane Junior High School and the newspaper at my high school, North Central. In fact, I visited North Central yesterday. I was the writer for the day working with the journalism students. So I still have a love of journalism. I had a 30-year career working with NBC News first and then ABC News as a producer and then as an executive. I was deputy bureau chief in Washington for ABC News and then director of talent development. The first 20-so years, I was a producer for both networks, or first one and then the other. Um, but that's the, that was my main career uh, mm-hmm. as a journalist, as a broadcasting television producer. I also have simultaneously been writing books and doing research about the women in my family. I wrote a young adult book about Madam Walker that was published in 1991. It was the first biography that anyone had ever written about her, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 2001, I wrote On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, which was the first comprehensive biography of Madam Walker. And I'm now, as you said, working on a biography of her daughter, Alelia Walker. Alelia Walker gets mentioned a lot in anything that people write about the Harlem Renaissance, but it's usually the same two or three paragraphs over and over again that aren't even quite accurate. And it was actually the same thing with Madam Walker. When I started doing the research, I, I found that I had to correct a lot of myths. And so you want to give your great-grandmother more play and more than one or two paragraphs in, in books and magazines. Exactly. Um, I'm interested, because you are a writer, in how you go about writing 
how do you manage your day when you're writing? For example, the biography of your great-great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. What was that like? The process is really different between the two books. I wrote the other book about 10 years ago. There was no Facebook. There were not as many distractions. I was not on as many boards. <laughs> so I was, I was much more focused and I could shut the world out. I find it much harder to shut the world out this time around. Uh, but I do that. I went away for seven weeks to a writer's colony at Yaddo in upstate New York so that I would only be focusing on the book. I get up in the morning. I go straight to my computer. I sit there all day and do the writing that I'm doing and try to focus. I'm now at the stage of actually writing. The research for this book took twice as long as I thought it would. I think mm -hmm. that's probably always the way. And I think people, the, the, I write so, I use so much history that I think it's hard for friends of mine to think, aren't you finished with that book yet? But I'm writing about people who nobody else has written about. So I have two rooms full of research. And I think perhaps the, the most important thing to mention is that when I start doing a book, I create fi a filing system. This is something Alex Haley was a mentor of mine, and this is a little piece of advice he gave me 25 years ago. He said, make a folder for every year of the person's life. Mm -hmm. And as you're gathering material, drop things into that folder. Well, that one folder for 1885, the year that Alelia Walker was born, actually becomes three folders. And the folder for 1927, the year that she opened her salon, The Dark Tower, becomes 20 folders because you're putting in the articles from the Amsterdam News and you're putting in the letters that Count A. Cullen and Harold Jackman wrote to each other about going to the opening of the, of the Dark Tower. So that expands and you realize then that becomes a chapter. So I organize my material, but it takes a really long mm -hmm. time because it's digging a little piece here, a little piece there. Do you do all of your research yourself, or do you have assistance to help? You know, I, for this book, I actually did everything myself. It's interesting with the lat when writing the writing on her own ground. This was, be, you know, the internet was. It was not as easy to, to research on the internet. There wasn't the ProQuest database that we can use now. Dissertations were not as accessible to me. I now have access to a university database, and so where I used to make a list of every week. 40 or 50 articles from journals or newspapers that I needed. There were a couple of graduate students from Howard who would, I'd give them the list and they'd go get those pages for me and photocopy them and bring them to me. Now I can actually access a lot on my own uh, on the Internet. And there are now 10 African-American newspapers going back to as far as 1892. Madam Walker and Alilia Walker were in the paper every week. Uh, in the society columns or their ads. So there's voluminous material. And then I'm really, with the Lilia Walker story, it's different from Madam Walker's story. Madam Walker's story, I was telling the story of a woman who was born in the worst circumstances in Delta, Louisiana, right after the Civil War, orphaned, who the first 38 years of her life, no one knew anything about her. There was very little documentation. And so I had to 
go to historical societies and read people's letters and look at city directories and try to find those documents. That was a very different kind of story because I was telling the story almost an up from slavery, not quite, but but a great rags to riches story, American story of a poor person who became wealthy and who was a business person, an entrepreneur, political activist. With the Lilia Walker story, it's much more about the daughter of a famous person, larger than life, what that relationship is, and then quickly trying to get into the social scene, the artistic scene, the cultural scene of the Harlem Renaissance. So I'm I'm researching and bringing in all of these people, some you've heard of, Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. Alberta Hunter. Many you haven't, most people haven't heard of, James Reese Europe, Turner Layton, Adelaide Hall. They were all really famous entertainers during the period. So I've had to research their lives. So when you were writing your biography of Madam C.J. Walker, what most excited you and, and what still excites you about her? She was an amazing, resilient, perseverant, creative visionary. I loved the arc of her life, being able to show the difficult circumstances of her early life, how she allowed herself to be molded and influenced by mentors, her interaction with women who were educated, even when she was a poor washerwoman, recognizing that she had a lot to learn, and then transforming herself into a wealthy entrepreneur, a businesswoman, pioneer of the modern hair care industry, who then empowered others. Mm-hmm. So I loved learning that. And I loved the fact that it wasn't just about hair, because if it were only about hair, I, you know, honestly, that would not be enough for me. That would be fine for some people. That's not that. I mean, it's interesting, but not enough. I really love finding out that she was a political activist, that she, even to the extent that she was so outspoken that she, along with Ida B. Wells, were spied upon by a black spy and considered Negro subversives. Now, I sort of loved that she was considered a subversive because really, you know, what, what it really meant is she was standing up for her rights. So that was very important to me, to find out her political activism and her philanthropy. So she was very politically conscious, and as you indicated, she worked with the anti-lynching movement. What was that like for her? She had grown up in very difficult circumstances in northern Louisiana during the, she was born in 1867, so during the 1870s and 1880s. And that was a very interesting area, as you know, where the before the Civil War, it was one of the wealthiest areas in the country, a great cotton growing area, wealthy plantation owners. It was 90% black population. That meant after the Civil War and after blacks had the right to vote with the Republican Party that was different from today's Republican Party, but the party of Lincoln, with the right to vote, it meant that there were a number of black elected officials in that part of the country. The place that had been one of the worst places for slavery now became a place that appeared to have a great deal of opportunity. Her family minister was a black state senator elected to the state senate of Louisiana. And her older brothers interacted with this man. They knew him. They were old enough to understand what was going on politically. She was actually still too young. But one of the things I think we, you know, no one knew this until I I researched it. She actually was exposed to 
political activism as a child and saw it through her brothers. Her brothers were part of the first major migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. In 1879, 1880, a movement called the Exodusters. Mm -hmm. And they moved from Delta, Louisiana, Vicksburg, Mississippi, to St. Louis. Many of the people who were part of this movement were really seeking land in Kansas and Nebraska. But they stayed in St. Louis. That allowed her later, after the death of her first husband, to follow them to St. Louis. So she, But she had seen their activism and the fact that her minister was run out of town by the Ku Klux Klan. She knew about violence from an early age. And was she not instrumental in sending a telegram to President Wilson and speaking out boldly on behalf of the anti-lynching movement? Absolutely. In 1917, the year before Mary Kay was born, Madam Walker had her first convention of her sales agents in Philadelphia. And during the convention, she gave prizes to the women, not just those who had sold the most products and brought in the most new agents, but those who had been politically active and who had contributed the most to charity. And at the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. A few days before that, Madam Walker and a number of Harlem leaders had traveled to Washington to the White House to present a petition to Woodrow Wilson. He didn't meet with them. Woodrow Wilson was not known for his uh, liberalism in terms of race, but uh, they did deliver the the petition. And that was um, not a part of the sassing of President Wilson on behalf of Monroe Trotter, was it? Because I know he, quote, sassed President Wilson and that, of course, did not go very well with Wilson. But that was a different time, was it? Was it was a not? different time, mm-hmm. and it actually ha- that had actually happened, I think, during the election or right after the election of probably 1912, I think. This was 1917, right after the East St. Louis riots. But Wilson had, during his campaign, suggested that he was going to be more receptive to rights for African Americans when, in fact, the federal government became more segregated during his term, and that was some of the backlash. One of the interesting things about Madam Walker for me is that where there was this schism in the black community, we know we see we're never we haven't been monolithic, we're still not monolithic, mm-hmm. but p- many people felt that they had to align themselves either with Booker T. Washington or with W.E.B. Du Bois or Monroe Trotter, who were considered more politically radical. Booker T. Washington was more accommodationist. Madam Walker was able to interact with all of them. Because she had money. She didn't need anything from them. They needed something from her. So she was able to look at their political philosophies and see what was what she liked and what seemed to fit what what her goals were. But I find it fascinating that Madam Walker had a confrontation with Booker T. Washington, uh, who was president of Tuskegee Institute and one of the most influential men of his times. Why did Madam Walker feel that Washington snubbed her. And what difference did his perceived snubbing of her make? I mean, why was she courting him? Madam Walker, as a woman who was trying to become a part of the black establishment, knew that Booker T. Washington was the most powerful black man in America. In addition to being president of Tuskegee Institute, he also was the founder and president of the National Negro Business League. 
he was very influential in terms of political patronage. He was the person who pulled the strings with a lot of the black newspapers. She truly understood his power, and she knew many of the people with whom she wanted to interact were really beholden to him. So she was friendly with both Washington and Du Bois. But she wanted his she wanted Booker T. Washington's endorsement because she knew how revered he was by much of the black community because he was a person who had had dinner at the White House with Theodore Roosevelt. There was nobody else who was in that kind of position. So she tried to interact with him. She was a member of the National Association of Colored Women. His wife was president of that organization. She'd met him at one of the conventions. When she was looking for investors in her company, she wrote to him. He really brushed her off and dismissed her. She wanted to go visit Tuskegee. There was a farmer's conference. She she wrote a letter to him and said, I'd like to come speak to the farmers. I think I can tell them, share my story with them, how I'd been the daughter of slaves and orphaned at seven, and now I'm a successful businesswoman. I built a factory. He told her not to come. She showed up anyway, and he sort of allowed her to speak at chapel, but it was very, very reluctant. And then she had contributed $1,000 to the building fund of a black YMC that was being built in Indianapolis. And so he knew exactly who she was. People were writing about her. It was the largest gift any black woman had ever given to a cause like that, you know, especially the the YMCA. And so she thought that her she knew that her story was inspiring. So she arrived at Booker T. Washington's National Negro Business League convention in July of 1912 in Chicago. She arrived in her chauffeur-driven car. There were 200 or so other delegates from around the country, people who had been slaves and who were the children of former enslaved people, who were bankers and pharmacists and realtors now, who had their own businesses. She knew her story was an amazing story to tell. And it was amazing. And it's interesting to me that she did not claim the fact that perhaps Booker T. Washington was treating her in the fashion because she was a female. She, no, she did not. She did not go there. She just wanted to be treated as an equal. She was used to dealing with men who were not. I mean, she had been an abused woman. This is a stunning thing for people to find out. And she was resilient enough to stand up and take take power over her own life. Mm-hmm. So at this convention, she sent word to Washington that she wanted to be Included on the program, he ignored her. The second day of the convention, a good friend of hers stood up with the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, George Knox, and said, we should hear from Madam Walker. Mm-hmm. He ignored Knox, even though they were good friends. And he said, we're talking about lifetime membership. And then he called on one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis who had been the treasurer of the fundraising campaign for the YMCA and who had a business that was a regional business. Her business was now an international and national business, and she contributed four times as much to this campaign as this man, the treasurer, had. But she maintained her pride and her dignity, and on the third and final day of the conference, she stood at her seat, looked toward Washington at the podium, and said, "'Surely you are not going to shut the door in my face.'" I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. When we return, I'd like for you to talk more about Madam Walker's modes of promotion, because I find that to be very stimulating as well. But we want to take a musical break, because on Profiles, we typically ask our guests to choose selections 
And you have selected Alberta Hunter. Yeah, I selected Alberta Hunter because I am writing a biography right now about Alelia Walker, my great-grandmother, who was a central figure of the Harlem Renaissance. She knew Alberta Hunter, and I was able to interview Ms. Hunter in the early 80s when I was doing some of my initial research. So I just, I love, this, this puts me in the mood to write and to think about that era. <laughs> on up some night my cat's rocking You can blow your top cause everything's free On the top floor, the third door to the rear That's where you'll always find me Stuff is there and the chicks fairly romp with glee Don't worry about a thing cause I'm laying it on the line for protection Telling cats downtown to let their conscience be Ah, oh, come on up, bring your friends How we start that ball a-rolling My castle's rocking Come on by and see Come on, folks I said, let's tip on up Some night my castle's rocking Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We're talking with writer Alilia Bundles. And when we went to break, you were talking about the way in which Madam C.J. Walker promoted herself. Could you speak more about that? You know, today when we look at what you have to do in business, you've got to have Facebook and Twitter and a blog and a website and advertising and personal relationships with people, and you can use Skype and all of these other things. Madam Walker didn't have any of those things. But she was very conscious of using the newspapers of traveling to promote her sales. She even had what was called a stereopticon. So we use PowerPoint today. She had the equivalent of the non-electronic PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. She had conventions for her sales agents. So she used every level of communication from newspapers to um, what, you know, what would have been traveling around. There were no airplanes, so she had to use trains. So Madam Walker used every level of communication from personal touch with traveling around, meeting with her sales agents. She advertised in newspapers all across the country. She didn't have Facebook, so that's, so she used newspapers. And she was very effective in her advertising. She took out ads. There were black newspapers that some were nationally distributed. The Indianapolis Freeman, uh, published by George Knox, was kind of like a black USA Today. It had a front page current events section, one of the best sports sections on the Negro baseball leagues and the Negro basketball teams, and then a really excellent entertainment section on the black theater troops and the black entertainers, the black opera singers. So that paper was distributed all over the country. She took out ads in the paper, and she she would use testimonials, just like Jenny Craig. She had a before and after picture where you could see 
that her her main product was a wonderful hair grower. You could see a before picture where her hair was very short and then two after pictures on either side where you had a front and a side view and you could see the effectiveness of her products. She also had letters from people where one woman wrote to her and she said, you've made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day than you could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. Women who sold her products said, you've made it I used to not be able to make money and support my family, and now I can do it. Women whose hair was short, and they'd say, uh, my hair used to be an eighth of an inch long, and now it's down my back (laughs) because I'm using your product, and I've been able to throw my wig away. So she was really very effective in tapping into women, not just about their hair care products, but about empowering them to be financially independent. Now, how did Madam Walker come to know how to persuade audiences? Did she consult with other people, Uh or did she just intuitively know that these are the kinds of things that one should do if one wishes to persuade an audience? She was extremely influenced by her church. You know, when we think of this, she she was a washerwoman born in 1867, uh, orphaned at seven, widowed at 20 with a two-year-old daughter living in Vicksburg, Mississippi, right across the river from Delta, Louisiana, where she'd been born. She could not move back in with her sister and brother-in-law because the brother-in-law had been abusive to her. So she moved up the river to St. Louis where she had three brothers who were barbers. Mm -hmm. Their barbershop was very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. It was the middle-class women of the church who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than a washerwoman. Many of these women were school teachers. They were accustomed to speaking. Many of them belonged to the National Association of Colored Women, which had biannual conventions, the ministers of the church. So she saw this. She became a member of the choir. She's still a poor washerwoman, but the choir was directed by a classically trained tenor who was an organist, who was a classically trained organist, who took the choir around the city where they performed. So she began, even as a poor washerwoman, to develop some of these performance skills, to develop some of these presentation skills. But then she took it and transformed herself. The people who, from whom she learned, many be- eventually became her employees. So she was very attentive to very things attentive. in her environment. Exactly. It's almost a Pygmalion it really kind is. of thing. Now, when Madam Walker, because we're still talking about the fact that she promoted herself, and this still fascinates me. Now, she contributed $1,000 to the YMCA. And I wondered whether that was very strategic as a promotional gimmick, shall I say. Well, yeah, absolutely, because the y, there was a big movement around that time with the YMCA. Jesse Moreland, who was the first black Secretary of the YMCA had persuaded Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears Roebuck, to contribute $25,000 to any community in America where the black and white communities would work together to raise the balance of $75,000 to build a $100,000 building, which was a lot of money at the time. But there was a lot of attention focused on that. This was just an amazing grassroots movement to improve things in the black community. There really were very few black YWCAs. So she even said when she pledged this $1,000, I'm contributing to our boys because I want to help our girls. So at the very same time, she was the treasurer of the interest group 
that was interested in creating a black YWCA in Indianapolis. So you're absolutely right. It was very strategic. And her her giving was very strategic. I remember someone asked when I mentioned this at one point to somebody that, you know, you leverage your gifts. And they said, oh, well, that, you know, does that mean it's, you know, it's not really sincere? And I said, no, it is very sincere. You are very strategic about it. And there's no person who gives today. Bill Gates doesn't give without being strategic. The Vanderbilts didn't give without being strategic. They saw a need and they saw things that they wanted to change. And she was approaching it in exactly the same way. So in terms of self-promotion, she could fit right in to today's um, scene in terms of knowing what to do and when and how and under what conditions. Now, she had some difficulties with her competitor, Ms. Malone. Talk about that for a moment, please. Absolutely. You know, in in this world, uh, if you live long enough, there are people who aren't going to like you. (laughs) There are people who are going to try to stand in your way. And in Madam Walker's case, she she was when she was trying to move out of becoming out of being a washerwoman in St. Louis in the early 1900s. There was another black woman named Annie Malone who was selling hair care products. Madam Walker had learned something about hair from her brothers who were barbers, but she saw this as an opportunity to sell some products on the side, make some money. She was trying to get out of her second marriage to John Davis, so she was really looking for ways to to empower herself and to move forward. So she sold products for Annie Malone uh, for a few months in St. Louis, and then trying to get out of this marriage, she moved to Denver in 1905, where she had a sister-in-law, a widowed sister-in-law and four nieces who could help her mix up these products. Her daughter by that time was in at Knoxville College. Now, while she was in Denver, she was working for a pharmacist, a white pharmacist named Mr. Schultz, who saw that she was selling the products on the side. She wasn't entirely happy with the outcome of the products. And he talked to her, helped her figure out what else she needed to add. It was a very simple formula. So she then began to get the idea, I'm not really getting along with this person. I want to do my own thing. We're having some disagreements about business. I can really make this on my own. Then shortly after that, her good friend Charles Joseph Walker moved from St. Louis. They got married. She began to call herself Mrs. Walker, then Madam Walker, and launched her own line of products. Through the rest of her life, these women were fierce competitors. Annie Malone said, Madam Walker stole her formula. Well, Annie Malone didn't really create the formula initially herself, but they were always at odds with each other. And I think people will say, I mean, and I think Annie Malone was an amazing figure. Like Madam Walker, she was a philanthropist. She was very uh, visionary. But I think we remember Madam Walker more today. Not because they weren't great, both great women, but because Madam Walker really died at the height of her fame in 1919. And, and people love that great uh, rags-to-riches story. Unfortunately for Annie Malone, she had a husband who really was very destructive to the business. Madam Walker just divorced C.J. Walker when he began yeah, she knew to get away. <laughs> But Annie Malone stayed married to a man named Aaron Malone, who really, you know, really did a head trip on her. She had tax problems. She went bankrupt. And so by the time she died in the 1950s, her star had fallen a bit. But she is a a woman truly worthy of being studied as well. 
Could you tell the story about how Madam C.J. Walker came up with the concoction that she used to put on women's heads? Sure. You know, I think there, there are people who still believe that Madam Walker invented the hot comb. She did not invent the hot comb. There are people, I see this on Twitter with young people, they think she invented the perm. She really didn't invent the perm. That's sort of a new um, invention or a new myth that people have created in the last decade. But her real problem was that she was losing her hair. She was going bald. And this is very hard for young people to even fathom. But 100 years ago, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, didn't have electricity, didn't have central heating. So you couldn't just walk into the bathroom in the morning, turn on the faucet, brush your teeth, jump into the shower, wash your hair, be on your way. You had to go pump the water from the well, heat the water. So people only took baths once a week. They washed their hair even less. They had a lot of old wives' tales about washing their hair. Sometimes they didn't wash their hair at all during the winter. And so people were losing their hair. They were going bald. And she is one of those women. Now, she told this story because, like Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, all of these early cosmetics women in the early 1900s, they all had these big myths and secrets and you know, auras that they created around themselves. And she said that the, that the, this had come to her in a dream, that a big African man appeared and told her what to mix up. So I have to say I believe that's part of the truth. What well, is more so likely. strategic, right? No, but yes, exactly. People needed the myth. But the real truth is this ointment that she used really had been around for a long time. Her, the real secret to her formula was she developed a shampoo encouraged women to wash their hair more often. Their scalps were clean. They implied an ointment that contained sulfur, which was really a couple of centuries old by that time. And I, I think it's interesting as well that she called her product Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. And she really used a name that demonstrated results. I mean, exactly. you want to have gorgeous hair, use Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. Exactly. How did she come... Well, you know, that. she and Annie Malone, they both shared that name. They both used that wonderful hair growth. So she did take that idea from <laughs> Annie Malone. That is that is absolutely true. But it really, it, what it was, it's not, it wasn't Rogaine. So it, put, it couldn't heal, um, cure male pattern baldness. But really, it was the sulfur in the product that healed the scalp, that healed the sores in the scalp, that healed the dandruff and that allowed the scalp to be healthy enough. And she said it was like cultivating crops. She knew how to grow cotton, and she said this is the same kind of thing. Your scalp is a field, and you have to fertilize it, and you have to make it healthy, and you have to keep it, you know, keep the weeds out of it. So she was really applying some of the same kinds of approaches that one would use with agriculture, which is why she called it beauty culture. We want to take a musical break. And first, I want to say that I was fascinated by the fact that you were a jazz DJ when you were in college. Why don't you talk about that before we listen to the <laughs> selections? Well, when I when I went to school, I went to Harvard for undergraduate school, and I'd always worked at the school newspaper, and I decided I didn't want to work at the newspaper there because it was really more like having a job. And I already had a heavy class load, and I decided I wanted to do something fun. I allowed myself to have fun, and being a jazz DJ was something that worked for me. I did an early morning show called Breakfast Jam at 7 in the morning, and then I became director of the jazz department. But both of my parents liked jazz, and that was my exposure to it. So I was learning music and uh, 
You know, it, it was I felt kind of hip, and I could go to the jazz clubs in in Boston. So it was a really fun time, and it was the thing that introduced me to broadcasting. We're talking with writer Alilia Bundles, who has selected Nat King Cole for today. Nat King Cole is important to me because Nat King Cole and Dinah Washington were my mother's two favorite singers. My mother died in 1976 when I was really starting to do my writing and research about the women in my family. So anytime I hear Nat King Cole, it brings memories of my mother. Unforgettable, that's what you are. Unforgettable, though near or far, like a song of love that clings to me. How the thought of you does things to me Never before Has someone been more Unforgettable In every way And forevermore That's how you stay That's why, darling, it's incredible That someone so unforgettable Thinks that I am unforgettable too Talking with writer Alilia Bundles. 
But what about women whose hair possibly did not grow? Do we have any information on that? Were there any testimonies from women who said, I tried your ointments. They simply did not work for me. Well, you know what? If they were, she didn't publish those letters. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't say. She was too clever for that. There was no buyer's remorse. (laughs) But, you know, really some of the same things that we see today where people have braided their hair so tightly that they have what's called traction Mm -hmm. alopecia, bald Mm -hmm. spots at the temples and bald spots at the crown of their heads. With the same kinds of things are going on. And this sort of overprocessing of products and chemicals and those kinds of things. She really was not a big fan of wigs and hair pieces. She wanted people to have healthy hair. Uh, so she would be here trying to figure out how to help people grow healthy hair now. And what do you consider the politics of hair to be like today as regards African-American women? It is as complicated as it was 100 years ago. And this is really confounding to me as a child of the 60s who went from that era when everybody straightened their hair to that moment when naturals were more acceptable and even preferable for many people. To have seen the pendulum swing back and forth in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. So now you have a lot of women who are very comfortable with natural hair, with dreadlocks, but also a lot of women who feel they must have hair weaves, uh, who feel they must have perms. So I, I even have a Facebook page called Black Hair Historian where I let the debate happen. I try not to be the hair police, but I try to be to let people have their voice about hair. And would you also talk about how you came to the title On Her Own? Ground. When Madam Walker was speaking to Booker T. Washington at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention, and he refused to let her speak, eventually she made a speech, and she said to him, surely you're not going to shut the door in my face, and told him of all of her accomplishments. And finally she said, essentially, how can you deny me? Because I am a woman who's built her own factory on her own ground. That's beautiful. I I love that story. Now, she hobnobbed, as I indicated previously, with a lot of people, including Booker T. Washington and Monroe Trotter. Was there any one individual who influenced her above all others? I think the, the seminal moment for her was interacting with the women in the church at St. Paul AME in St. Louis when she was still a washerwoman barely literate, and there was a woman named Jessie Robinson who was a school teacher, who had, who had been her, one of her daughter's school teachers, who was very active in the church, who was also in the leadership of one of the, uh, there was a Black Knights of Pythias Benevolent Society. She, her husband was involved. She was the national uh, director of the women's auxiliary to that organization. This was a woman with real leadership. And I think Sarah Breedlove McWilliams modeled herself after Jesse Robinson. Eventually, Jesse Robinson ran the Walker Beauty School in St. Louis because of the leadership skills. So I think it was something that was very early. And then, of course, as she progressed, she met people like Mary McLeod Bethune and Ida B. Wells Barnett, A. Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey. W.E.B. Du Bois, and she learned something from all of those people. But I, but I think 
in that, that very early stage because her mother had died so young. Now, most of her life, Madam Walker encouraged African-American women to find a place in commerce and trade. Did she talk about education in any way, or did she stick to what she felt she knew best, which was commerce? Education was critical. One of the things that motivated her was making sure that her daughter got an education. She had had very little opportunity as a child to get formal education. But as she progressed, she actually hired a personal tutor to help her improve her grammar, to improve her public speaking, to help her understand, to know etiquette. And uh, some of my favorite stories about her are this sort of continuing self-education and self-improvement. Her secretary, who was still living when I was a young adult, said that whenever Madam Walker was in Indianapolis and they would, she would be in the office and some of the office girls didn't understand a word in the newspaper because they'd read the newspaper together, they would look the word up and they would all learn the word together. Her attorney wrote a letter to her and said, the next time you're in town, we must go to the bank and you need to sign a signature card because your handwriting has improved so much. She gave quite a bit of money and scholarships to black schools as well. We're talking with writer Alilia Bundles, who has selected Miles Davis with Coltrane as her precious selections for today. Miles Davis and John Coltrane are still two of my favorite jazz musicians. I'm still kind of that old school bebop jazz. (laughs) And whenever I hear So What, it just makes me want to pop my fingers and gives me those great memories of being a DJ in college. have about five minutes, but in our remaining moments, I would like for you to talk about Madam Walker in terms of how she would be situated today. What do you think is her special legacy? It's important for me that people see her as a multidimensional person. Many people know they think of Madam Walker as the hair lady. I like to look at her not just as the hair lady, but to look at her as a woman who is one of the great American rags-to-riches stories. She transformed herself from an illiterate washerwoman into one of the wealthiest businesswomen in the world, a self-made millionaire. The fact that she became a millionaire is fantastic. But to me, she's worth remembering because she used her money and her influence 
to empower others, to employ thousands of women, to help them become economically independent, to be a philanthropist, to be a patron of the arts, to be a political activist, to really make a difference. We've been speaking with writer Alilia Bundles. Alilia, thank you for being here. This is Carolyn Calloway-Thomas for Profiles. Thank you for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.